Well, welcome to church tonight. We're working our way through the most famous of Jesus' parables. And it really is, if uh, the Christian message was likened to a lake, uh, this would be one of the areas of the lake where you'd be able to see right to the bottom. The water here is, is clear, it's blue, and you can see very, very deep. And that's why we're spending six weeks in this amazing parable. Tonight we're looking at, um, at an interesting topic. Before we look at it, uh, let's pray and then let's dive in. Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that will yield to your extravagant love tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, uh, there's a little novel uh, by Ben Elton called Popcorn, and in that novel he says something uh, quite striking, and I've got it printed on your outlines there. He says this, he says, uh, he says, nothing is anybody's fault. We don't do wrong, we don't have problem. we've got problems. I mean, we're victims, alcoholics, sexaholics, victims. People don't fail anymore, they experience negative success. We're, we're building a culture, he says, of gutless, spineless, self-righteous, whining crybabies who have an excuse for everything and take responsibility for nothing. I wonder whether that's, you can see whether that's true in your life, whether there are people in your workplace, in the flat, uh, the terrace, whatever housing you're in, uh, whether there's people in your sporting club, people in your family, whether you can see that kind of gutless, spineless, whinging, crybaby approach to not taking responsibility for any problem in their life, blaming others, minimizing the problem they've created and never owning it. I wonder if you've experienced people like that. We see it all the time in politicians, don't we? I don't understand this about politicians. You know, I would like them more. I would vote for some of them if only they would just say, yep, that was really dumb, actually. We're sorry about that, and these are the steps we're trying to put in place to get through this. We're really sorry. If they only said that, I would actually like them. But I, you know, it's, it's strange because I think they think that if they say that, they admit defeat, they admit weakness, then we won't like them. It's quite interesting. And so we see this spineless, self-righteous excuse-making all over the place. And perhaps you live with someone who breaks the washing machine and doesn't tell you. Perhaps you live with someone who just leaves the place a mess and just refuse to clean up, and they don't see a problem with that. Perhaps you work with someone who leaves the front door of the office open. You know, um, I don't know what it is. Right? <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't that was meant to be a light-hearted dig. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was meant to be a joke, and then all, all of you thought, wow, that's harsh. Okay, so I'm sorry. Public, you know, perhaps you have to work for a boss who criticizes you in front of a hundred, couple hundred people, right? And doesn't see a problem with it. Okay, so back on me. Uh, well, I think we live in a time and place where we actually don't know how to deal with the sin in our lives. I was watching a movie recently uh, with Denzel Washington in it. Denzel always surprises me because I don't like him. He always walks around with this smug, self-righteous look. Anyone feel the same? No, just me. All right. (laughs) One or two people. I I really don't like, like, he's tall, handsome, you know, very accomplished, but he's always smug. But I think that's why, actually, when he 
the, the characters he plays are often the smug kind of characters. So there's Training Day, and he plays this smug, self-righteous, corrupt cop, and he's absolutely brilliant in it. I watched uh, the movie Flight the other day. Has anyone seen it? Uh, I think it got nominated for a couple of Academy Awards. I, I watched it because there was nothing else to watch. It was just sitting there. I'm like, okay, I'll watch it, not expecting much. But it was actually, uh, it was actually a quite interesting movie. Denzel Washington plays the character, the lead character of this, um, of this pilot who is addicted to alcohol and cocaine. And the first scene, you see him wake up. Uh, after having a, well, not wake up, he'd just been having sex with a woman and they were drunk, alcohol strewn all over the floor and he has to get up to go and fly an aeroplane. And because he's kind of drunk, he sniffs some coke, that perks him up and then he flies this aeroplane and uh, everything's going all right until the plane has, it just hits something, one of the engines blows or something happens and the it's as though the aeroplane just sinks to the ground. It's heading for the, for the, for the ground. And he ends up, ends up pulling off this remarkable thing where everyone testifies in the movie that only he could have pulled this off. And he pulls it off drunk and high on cocaine. And the rest of the movie, the kind of movie isn't about his heroism in that. The rest of the movie is all about whether he will, he will admit whether he'd come to himself and admit he's got a problem with alcohol and cocaine. And it's a fascinating movie because he sees himself as the hero. He does save hundreds of people's lives. But the, the lawyers who are involved, they want to take him down for being drunk and high and blame it on him. And it's a fascinating story because he refuses all the way through the movie to admit that he has a problem. He's, married, he's, he's divorced and he stalks his ex-wife. His teenage son doesn't want anything to do with him. He's a very high-functioning alcoholic. But he lives in denial. And it's fascinating because, you know, it's quite interesting. Why is it, as the watcher of this movie, do I sympathize and am I able to relate to him? I've never done cocaine, right? I'm not addicted to alcohol, and yet, for some reason, as the audience, you're able to relate to this guy. And I take it that the reason we can identify with this guy, even though few of us are in a similar situation, is because we all share his ability to live in denial, to struggle to actually admit the fact that, yeah, we've got a problem. And I think Ben Elton is right that we live in a generation where nothing is anybody's fault anymore. We're victims. It's not my fault. Well, that's what this story in Luke 15 is all about. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen the context, which is religious people getting angry that Jesus would welcome people who have messed up lives. They're like, you shouldn't be welcoming them. You should only be spending time with the good people. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. Let me explain why that's ridiculous. And he gives this story about a father who welcomes his son who's got a messed up life. Then last week we, we looked at the first half of the story of the younger son and tonight the second half of his story. Last week it was the travel to a distant country. Tonight it's the return. And the question is how do we break the excuse making in our life? How do we 
break the way we blame others and the way we minimize the, the flaws in our lives? And how do we experience the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus offers? Jesus' answer in this story is repentance. There, I've said it, right? Repentance. It's a very ugly religious word, isn't it? But Jesus says the way to deal with what's really wrong on the inside of your life is this ugly spiritual word, repentance. And he teaches us in this, in this story four things about repentance. So let's go through them. Firstly, uh, the first thing he teaches us is that repentance starts... Repentance starts when you face reality. Repentance starts when you face reality. Come and read with me again. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one says to his dad, Dad, give me my share of the estate. So the father wastefully divides his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed, to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am. I'm starving to death. And there's the key verse right there on repentance. He comes, he comes to his senses. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Uh, he comes to his, here's a boy who spent his life, all his money. We saw this last week. You can get it on the website this week. The, you can download the sermon. But here's a guy who spent his whole life pursuing happiness and pleasure and yet it starved him, enslaved him, and absolutely isolated him. We saw that last week, and here he is in a literal pigsty, and he longs to feed himself with the food the pigs are eating. And he's so isolated, no one will even let him eat that food. And, and deep down, Jesus is saying that when we run from God, deep down we have this gnawing vacuum within our souls, just like the hole in this boy's stomach. And when you're hungry, Jesus is saying, you'll eat anything. When you're hungry, and many people are like this, they go through life searching for happiness, searching for themselves, who am I? And when you're starving for an answer to those questions, you often will just, you'll eat, metaphorically, you'll eat anything to try and fill that, that vacuum in your life, to fill your life with meaning. And with every failed dream, we move on to the next promise of happiness, even if it's just pig slops that are on offer. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Now, the interesting thing about this boy's hunger is that it's also his hope. His hunger is his hope because he'd, had he eaten the food the pigs were eating, I think it would have been lost for him. But the first thing he does is he refuses to eat it. He decides to stay hungry, to go on searching, longing for an answer to the question of happiness and an answer to the question of 
identity? What will make me happy? What will tell me who I am? Will it be eating pig slops? No, I'm not going to eat it. He refuses. But the most tragic thing about many people in this world is that when they're in the pigsty, they eat and they fill themselves with that which won't satisfy them and yet they go on eating and eating and eating. And they never come to their senses. But this guy, he comes to his senses and he faces, he faces reality. It takes courage to look in the mirror and to accept where you're at. And this guy does it. He's not scared. He's not lacking the courage to actually look at what he was going to put in his mouth. And he looks at it and he said, no, this is absolutely ridiculous. He surrenders his delusions. He refuses the lie he's been believing, he refuses to stay in denial. And he says, no, let me look at reality right now. This isn't telling me who I am, this life I've chosen, and it's not leading to happiness. I remember that was the second year of university for me. Uh, I'd finished high school. I grew up in a family. Um, I think my brother's here, but we were like the Flanders, right? Uh, you know, um, my, you know, my brother's name was Todd, <laughs> and we took God very, very seriously. And I remember high school; I was the good guy. I hit uni, and then I'm like, "This is ridiculous." I'm traveling to a distant country, metaphorically speaking, and there I'm going to give myself to working out who I am and trying to find happiness because I was sure happiness wouldn't be found with God. And so I went on this, this kind of this travel to a distant country and then the second year of university I came to my senses my my brother shook me to my he dragged me along to mid-year conference uh, which is a conference for uni students I was I was not looking forward to it at all but I was confronted with the fact that I'd believed this lie that happiness was this direction away from God somehow and I came to my senses and that was the start of repentance for me. This guy, he comes to his senses. Most of us live hiding and afraid from facing ourselves. This guy, he just looks at himself square in the face and realizes this isn't leading to happiness. I've got to change. He realizes he's lost, empty and unhappy. And he faces up to that. And I wonder, have you done that? Have you really looked at yourself Have you written down what's happened in your life this year and gone over it with a pen? Are you able to look at the way your hands have acted this year and say, yeah, they're clean? The way your lips have spoken this year and yeah, yeah, that's pure. Where your feet have taken you this year and said, yeah, they've gone to good places. Is it, have you done that with yourself? That's what this guy does. And it's the beginning of repentance and it's the beginning of freedom for him. You know, one of the reasons we don't come to our senses is because we're not yet bankrupt. And it'd be very, very, very difficult to get bankrupt in Sydney. I don't just mean monetarily bankrupt, but spiritually at the end of your resources. You know, we see in the life of this son that he had exhausted all his efforts. He longs to fill his stomach, but no one gives him anything at all. He was finished and no one could help him. There was only one person left 
and that was his father. But here's the thing, as long as you have a dollar of your own left, the thing is you never turn to Jesus. As long as there's someone to ask for help, we don't turn to Jesus. And that's why it seems to be in our city very few people turn to Jesus. Because you get drunk, well, there's Alcoholics Anonymous and there's rehab. You, know, you get into financial problems, there's a financial plan. You get into legal problems, there's legal aid. There's family, there's friends. And yet Jesus seems to be saying here that generally it's only those who end up with nothing who are able to humble themselves and realize they actually need God. Most of us, we think, well, I'll fix my life. I'll, I'll look at my psychology. I'll, I'll see a counselor. I'll, 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 medi- I'll medicate, you know, or I'll get a divorce or I'll get married again or I'll move to a new city. And we have all these plans And Jesus seems to be saying that as long as there's an A, a B, a C, or a Z, as long as there's more options, we refuse to actually come to our senses. And Jesus says, don't wait. Don't wait for that to happen. It's as though he's pleading with us here. And so the danger is that if your life is going well, you'll miss this, and you'll miss the freedom Jesus has to offer. He's saying, come to your senses. I wonder if you've ever driven down a one-way street. Have you ever done that? Anyone done that Albion Street, uh, Surrey Hills? Couple of, I've done it Albion Street, and you drive down. This is one of the first times I was in Surrey Hills. I still remember it. And I turned down there, and there were all these cars going the wrong way. <laughs> They're all going the wrong way. And then what happens? Well, you've got to come to your senses. And admit the fact, I've been going the wrong way. Jesus is saying, you've got to do that. That's the first step in repentance. And it leads to freedom. Second step uh, for repentance is you've got to own the guilt. You've got to own the guilt. Look at this guy, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, well, how many of my dad's hired servants, they've got food to spare and I'm starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, dad, I've sinned. Hear him own the sin. I've sinned, and then he says, I've sinned vertically and I've sinned horizontally. And we've got to learn to do both in our owning of sin. He says, I've sinned vertically against heaven and I've sinned horizontally against you. And so this is the second thing this brother, younger brother does in repenting. He owns the guilt. He says, I've sinned against heaven. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because here he is, he's ripped off his dad, he's, uh, he's brought shame upon his family, and yet the first thing he says is, I've sinned against, not the family, but I've sinned against heaven. And that's because primarily, whatever sin you do, primarily, he says, Jesus says, you're sinning against God. In other words, true repentance realizes that whenever you sin, Whenever you do something, sin at its heart primarily, first of all, is against, it's against the heart of God. Sin isn't at its core uh, primarily, sin isn't primarily breaking a law. Sin is primarily breaking God's heart. And that's what Jesus wants us to know here. True repentance begins not just when you say sorry to the people you've sinned against, but when you realize that that's connected somehow 
with the very heart of God. Now, this is very important because what Jesus is teaching here is there is a difference between regret. There's a difference between regret, regretting the thing you've just done, and remorse, being filled with grief for what the thing you've done has caused someone Else, And this is very, very important. We see this young son, verse 17. If you just stopped at verse 17, you wouldn't have true repentance. Look at verse 17. Uh, He first of all says, How many of my father's hired servants? They've got food to spare and I'm starving to death here. What's he doing there? Well, he's regretting what he's done, isn't he? He's regretting that his life is broken. But he's not yet regretting that he's broken the father's heart is it? You know, there's a very important distinction to make. It's not repentance. And you've experienced this in a relationship. You ever had someone say, look, look, um, I'm, I'm sorry you're feeling this way. You know what that means? I'm not sorry for doing it. You've got issues. You know, that's what it means. I'm sorry you're feeling this way. You know, you're just irrationally angry right now. You're irrationally hurt by this. That's not my fault. It's your fault, you know. And very often we go through life sorry for the consequences of our sin. I'm sorry that that hurt you, but I'm not really sorry that I, I hurt you, all right? There's a difference there. A number of years ago, I heard the story, let me illustrate this with this guy. I heard this story about a guy who came to a pastor for marriage counseling. He, uh, they, he and his wife, they got married around 25 and they'd been married a year and he was a very arrogant man, a very manipulative man. And his wife said to him, his wife said, look, I'm leaving, I'm packing my bags and I'm going. And uh, the guy who was recounting this story, he was the pastor and he was sharing how this guy, he came to him and he said, can we do counselling? And he said, sure. And he told his wife and his wife said, okay, if you go to counselling with our pastor, sure, let's do it. And so she goes and they show up and they go through all these kinds of things she wanted him to change and he was... The pastor tells the story. He was absolutely scared. He was upset. He was in tears. Absolutely broken. He just couldn't believe what was happening. He was weeping, very upset, saying, well, she's going to leave me. And, you know, I don't want her to leave me. And so she ends up writing down this list. And she says to the counselor, look, and she says to the guy, he says, look, if you're able to work on these things, well, then we'll be able to stay married. He said, stop doing this. And so that week, he did stop doing all those things. Then the next week, she said, we'll stop doing this and start doing this. And that week, he did. And then the next week, things started to change and things got better. And he said, wow, she's really going to keep me. And after a couple of months, he became so assured, this pastor shares, so assured that she was going to accept him again, that he just went back to what he was doing previously. He was weeping, he was crying in the middle of marriage counselling, but he was weeping and crying about the consequences that his sins were bringing towards him, right? I don't want to be divorced. But he didn't care about the way he'd been treating her heart. And so as soon as he was assured, no, she's going to accept me, she's going to love me, He stopped changing and he went back to the way of life he'd been living. Here's the thing. People, they want help with the mess in their lives. 
but most, lots of people, they actually don't want to change. They're sorry for the consequences their sin is creating in their life, but they're not sorry for the sin. They want help out of debt, but they don't want to deal with their greed. They want help with their broken relationships, but they don't want to swallow the resentment and bitterness and learn how to forgive. And Jesus is saying here there is a big distinction between being sorry for the consequences of your sin and sorry for the sin itself. True repentance begins not just when you're sorry about the consequences, but when you own the sin and are sorry for what it's done to the person you've offended against. And here's the thing. Uh, There's another distinction here. When religious people repent, they're often terrified. They repent. Why? Because they're terrified of the justice of God. But when Christian people repent and turn back to God, it's not as though they're scared God's going to smite them. They're assured God's going to be merciful for them. The reason Christians repent is because they've worried they've offended the goodness of God. See the difference? There are some people, they, they repent because they're worried about the consequences of their sin. Not because, they're, not because of the sin themselves, itself. And then there are others who they repent. One of the consequences of their sin is God's wrath, hell. And so they will repent. Religious people are great at repenting like that. But they don't repent. Christians repent, though, because they fear they've offended the goodness and gracious heart of God himself. I heard another story, I can't remember who told this story, about another guy who got cheating against his wife. I think the reason I go for the, just as I think I go for these because the best way to understand sin is in relational terms. So you may always wonder, why do you always talk about adultery, Toby, when you're talking about sin? I take it that's because sin at its heart is adultery against God. I remember hearing this story about another guy who committed adultery, and he came home, and he really was broken. He, was, he came to his wife, and he said, I'm so, so sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. And she forgave him, and he'd go off, and he was tempted again. And it, the, I can't remember who told me the story. I don't know where I saw it. But anyway, one day, the thing that really changed his heart was he came in, and his wife didn't realize that he'd come in. He walks up to his bedroom, and he saw her sitting on her bed, in tears, praying, God, please help me forgive him. Please help me forgive him. And it was that moment, it radically changed this guy's life. He realized that his sin didn't just have consequences relationally, but his sin was against her heart. It was breaking not just his marriage, but his heart. That's the second step. In repenting, repenting happens when you own the sin and you don't make excuses for it. Okay, the third step in repentance is uh, the first step. Uh, What was it? It is to come to your senses. It's to face reality. The second step is to own the sin. I have sinned. And then the third step is to make the return. This is pretty obvious. You make the return. You don't delay. So verse 18, he says, I will set out and go back to my father. Verse 20, so he got up and he went 
to his father. He acts upon it. He leaves the far country. He stood with pigs long enough. He doesn't stay back there and try and clean up his life so that he can go home to his dad and say, look, things are all right. No, he leaves and he acts and he gets out of there back to his father straight away. He takes his stand and he commits himself there and then. How silly would it be for this guy to have thought all he did and yet not do it? He would still have remained in the far country, but he does it. He acts on his decision. That's the third step in repentance. You've got to do it. Not just think it, but come to God. Own your sin. Come to your senses. Not just tuck it away for a day in the future, but actually make the return. Come home to God today. That's the third step. And then fourthly, Uh, The fourth step is walk towards extravagant love. Now, we're not not quite done because this one is probably the most important one we've seen because this is the key to repentance. And it's possibly something this guy doesn't actually do, uh, but we must do it. Look at what he says in verse 18 and 19. His plan is that he'd come to his father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That sounds great and it's good. That's the first step of repentance. But then he says this. He says, make me like one of your hired servants. Do you see what he's doing there? He's doubting the father's warm reception. He's doubting the father's generosity here. He's saying, Father, I know I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. But to be honest, I know how you're going to treat me here. Let me, look, I know you're not going to be merciful toward me. And so he walks towards someone who's not going to be merciful toward him. And I wonder how that journey would have gone. He would have been incredibly nervous, wouldn't he? He would have been terribly afraid. And he's coming on the terms that, Dad, look, I've screwed up. I'll try and pay you back for this. And you know, uh, lots of people, they come before God like that. They think that repentance is trying to pay God back somehow. I've done something wrong. I've got to pay you back, God, by, you know, by cleaning your act. Or This is how lots of people repent. They think that they, well, they come to God, but so long as they work up their emotional life enough so that they really are loathing themselves... Uh, really are you know, beating themselves up and up, then God won't accept them. Lots of people come to God and they think, well, unless he sees me really broken, really chastising myself, really slamming myself, beating myself up, well, then he's not going to accept me. And lots of people do what this son does. They doubt God's reception of them. And so when the younger... But look at actually what happens. Jesus says there's actually a different way to come home. When the young son, he starts his journey home, where is the father? I love this. He's not in his house, busy at work. He's not taking the occasional glance. He, doesn't, he isn't interrupted by a knock on the door. And then he thinks, well, I'm just, if that's that younger son of mine, I'm just going to let him wait a little bit. I'm going to let him feel a little bit of the guilt. You know, I'm going to make him grovel. I'm not, you know, I'm going to make him cry out enough. No, he's not doing that, is he? He's on his front porch, binoculars in hand, scanning the horizon, 
longing that his son would come home. So what do we read? Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. He sees him. He, he's a long way off, way into the distance. He just doesn't see him by chance. He's scanning the horizon longing. And then we see verse 20, he was filled with compassion. That word compassion is the Greek word splagizomai. I love it. It means to be gutted. It means for the, your bowels to be in a constant state of turmoil. He's absolutely gutted and he runs to his son. His heart reaches his son before his legs carry him there. And he runs and falls on him and throws his arms around him and kisses him. He removes the rags from his bo- the son's body. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't want his son to be defined by his past, but by his own love of him. And so he puts a, re- a robe on his body to cover his nakedness. He puts a ring, the family signet ring, on his finger and say, son, you're welcome back into the family. You think you're going to come and be one of my hired servants? Heck no, you're a son. And finally, he throws a party. He's no longer starving, but filled with food and joy. This is a picture of God. Isn't it an incredible picture of God? That God is longing for each one of us to come back to him today. Longing to wipe out our sins Not to make you pay for them, but to just strip you of them, to put them behind you, to clothe you in his righteousness and to celebrate the forgiveness he offers with you. The world tries, our world tries to clean the old suit and make it respectable. Jesus offers us a whole new suit to put on which will make us clean and strong. Satan would point his finger at our past But Jesus would have us look at the robe and the ring and know that all is well. And why is this that the Father does this? Well, we call this series extravagant because that's what it is. It's extravagant love. This son didn't deserve it. He can't pay for it. And yet he receives it. The idea that repentance is earning your way back to God. The idea that repentance is cleaning your act up before you come home to God, that's utterly ridiculous. Repentance is walking in the direction of extravagant love. That's what Jesus wants us to know here. Now that is the key to repentance, isn't it? Because can you imagine this poor nervous guy walking home (laughs) nervously, terrified about what the father is going to say to him. Don't you think that it might have made the speech a little easier had he known that his father's heart would be this way towards him? That's why Jesus tells us the parable. He wants us to know that the key to your repentance is how you imagine God to be. That's the key. You are walking towards Not a moral policeman, not an angry judge, but the extravagant love, the extravagant love of a father. That's the key to repentance. Now, here's the thing. The world thinks that repentance, owning your sin, it's bad psychological and emotional health. 
And that's because the world tells us, well, how can you be so conflicted? How can you think that deep down within you that there's actually something wrong with you? The world says that actually if you own your sin, it'll just pull you down. It'll pull you down like you know, a diver's belt. It'll pull you to the bottom of the ocean. But here's the thing. The Christian doesn't just have the diver's belt of owning your sin that you're wearing. You also have the, I don't know, what, what makes you go up, right? The balloon, a big balloon, right? I'm making this up as I go on, as you can tell, right? But the Christian has a balloon on which they're holding, which makes them ascend, right? The world thinks you get real with your sin, you'll just be crushed and you'll sink on the bottom of the ocean. That isn't true, is it? Because Although you can be real with your sin and that will make you fall down and it'll, it'll pull you, it will humble you. But here's what the grace of God does to you it's like a helium balloon. It'll lift you up way higher than what denying your sin could ever puff you up to be. You know, that's a sin. Confessing your sin, owning your sin makes absolute emotional and psychological sense. If you don't just affix the diver's belt of owning it, but also holding on to the extravagant love of God. It'll lift you up higher than trying to prop yourself up by denying you've got anything wrong in your life. You know, there's this uh, incredible famous uh, story in America, a very famous American story. As Australians, most of us don't know it, but Billy Graham tells it uh, quite famously as well of a man who's been incarcerated in prison for a number of years. And the week before he gets released from, from prison, he writes a letter to his wife and kids. And he says, I'm being paroled next week. I've been in here almost eight years. I know you don't want me to come home, but maybe if you'd have any love left in your heart, I'm going to be on the 10 a.m. bus and I'll be passing by our house. And if you will welcome me, I don't want it to be awkward, but if you will welcome me, perhaps you could put a yellow sheet or a yellow ribbon outside the house. Then I'll know that you'll receive me or not. And if you won't receive me, I'll, I'll just pass on by because I know how ashamed you must be of me. And on his way home, uh, the story goes, this guy, uh, a group of university students jumps on the bus and they get to, to talking and he starts telling them about he's been in prison, he hasn't seen his wife and kids for the last eight years and how if there's a yellow ribbon or a yellow sheet out the front of his house then she'll receive him, but if not, well, no, she won't receive him. And so anticipation builds as they get closer and closer and closer to the street he lives on. As they turn the corner to the street he lives on and start driving down that street, all the way up and down that street, there are yellow ribbons and yellow streets hung from every single tree down the street. Everyone starts cheering, he jumps off the bus, and he's reunited with his wife. And Jesus wants you to know that tonight, today, all of heaven's ribbons, all of heaven's sheets are yellow inviting you to come home. God is this Father who is scanning the horizon today, longing for you to come home. He's not going to beat you up 
longing for you to just come to your senses, own the guilt, make the journey, and walk towards extravagant love. I wonder if you see the liberation of being repentant. A repentant person who is someone who is always free from evasion. A repentant person is free from having to create the idea that they are always doing the right thing. A repentant person is actually free to admit that, yeah, that was wrong. And they don't feel crushed by that because they're holding onto the hot air balloon of the extravagant love of God. They're able to look honestly at their life and say, yeah, I'm not all I want to be, not all I should be. But by the grace of God, he loves me. And it makes a repentant person able to deal with criticism. Now, here's the thing. What would it look like for this church to be a community that practices repentance? Well, it would be a community of truth-telling, wouldn't it? It would be a community where we're not too scared to invite other people into our lives to tell us the truth about what's going on in our lives. Because like this younger son, you've got to come to your senses. And very often, you don't bring yourself to your senses. It's driving down a wrong way street and a whole bunch of other people hitting the horn, yelling at you. That's what brings you to to your senses. Essentially, that's what church is. I remember reading the story. I haven't read the Odyssey, but I was reading somewhere about uh, the story of Odysseus on his great voyage in the Odyssey. There's a place in which he was going to go by the island of Sirens. Do you know this? And he was told that when he hears the siren call, he'll go nuts. He'll he'll absolutely go nuts. and, And he would steer the ship into the rocks and they'd all be killed. And so you know what he does? He gathers all his... Uh, fellow soldiers and he says when we're going near that island what I want you to do is tie me to the mast I'm going to go nuts I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to say lots and lots of crazy stuff right but you've got to tie me to the mast when I'm getting near that place otherwise I'm going to sail this ship into the rocks and we're all going to dry now that's what the church is right you kind of laugh at that that's ridiculous right that essentially that is what the church is. You know, because you see, if you come here, you take notes during the sermons, you know, and you come and you go as you wish, you're just a consumer. And the gospel, Jesus is never going to change your life. It's only when you commit to other people and you say to them, there are going to be times in my life when I'm absolutely going nuts and I need you to speak the truth to me at that moment. You know, like cults will take this to the extreme and they will literally tie you to the mast. That's not what I'm talking about here, right? At all, right? What I'm talking about is a community that has the courage to speak to one another about our sin. That's the first thing it'd look like if this church were a repentant community. The second thing it'd look like is we'd be a loving community. What it'd look like is whenever anyone is speaking to the truth, the, the truth to you and holding you accountable, they realize they're just a repentant sinner just like you. They don't have this smug sense of superiority over you. It's not as though they're going, well, <laughs> let me tell you how life should be lived. No, because we're all a bunch of sinners in need of God's extravagant love. And so the second way you'd, you'd tell if we were a repentant community is not just if there is truth-telling going on, and you'd invite it.
But secondly, if we did it in a loving way, not in a smug, self-righteous way, but in a gentle way, a way in which you're always hoping for the change of the other person, in a way where you never give up, no matter how many times your mate screws up. You never give up on them. You keep pursuing them and loving them and showing the extravagant love God has for them. God himself has come out from his home to welcome you with his ring and his robe. All of heaven's curtains, what do you call them? Sheets are open for you tonight. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've become in your life. You really can come home. Own your sin. Come to your senses. Walk towards extravagant love. And God will welcome you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for this picture of your fatherly love in Luke chapter 15. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're standing there, scanning the horizons, longing for us to come home. We thank you, we thank you that you're not standing there with a whip in a hand ready to beat us. You're standing there with your ring, your robe, and a party waiting for us. Father, there are times in our life when we are terribly ashamed of the sin we've done and we doubt how you could ever cover it over and yet here's a picture of your great love for us that you're willing to do that if only we'd own it and walk towards you father there are others of us here tonight who are who are we've been away from you for for a period of time and maybe We're starting to come to our senses. We don't know what that means. But Heavenly Father, we pray for them that you just help them take that first step on the way back to you. Father, that you give them the information, that you'd give them friends able to talk to them about the way Jesus is able to change their life. Father, we pray that this church would be a repentant community, one which speaks the truth and invites the truth to be spoken about us. Father, there are times when we're going to need to tell our friends, you need to strap us to the mast, metaphorically, and actually say the hard things to us. But Father, we long to be a loving community, not one where there's smug self-righteousness, but one where there's gentleness, one where we don't give up on each other. Father, we pray that we would be different from the world in not being able to handle the problems in our life. We pray that we would come to our senses, own it, make this journey back to you and walk towards extravagant love because it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.